Hi readers, and welcome to episode 18 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your host, Ang Harrod, and we've got a big show today with our friend Erin Claire Barrow, who will be talking to us about feminist fairy tales. There is also a ton of juicy book news that I can't wait to share with you, some mini book reviews, heaps of book events, and some books for the world updates. Let's go. Last episode, we chatted with Lauren from Beyond Cube Bookshop about the best way to pack your books when you have to move them. Beyond Q had kilometres of shelves full of books and managed to just finish packing up the store to meet the deadline. The new premises is now open for business and I ducked in for a quick visit at the new address in Weston. I actually took a wrong turn at the beginning of the drive because I was on autopilot to the curtain shops where it used to be. So when I got there, Jenny told me that they only have about half their stock out at the moment, and there are big plans to build an extension and get the cafe and bar up and running, but it already looks super impressive. The decor at the doorway is just stunning, and when you walk in, it's like you've walked into Mary Poppins' hotel room in Wonderland. They've attached all of these tables and chairs upside down on the ceiling, each with its own theme, and the effect is just magical. Then you can climb up the stairs to listen to live music and see all of their rare books. And this is where the cafe will be going. I cannot wait until it's in full swing. And as Dan the musician said to me, I think it would be a great place to record a podcast. So it's probably a good idea to give some updates on a project that I've been working on, the ACT Lit Bloggers of the Future. I think I first mentioned this program back in episode 15 when I very excitedly found out that I had been accepted into the program. The Lit Bloggers program involves a couple of things. One, attending literary events at the National Library of Australia, also known as one of my favourite places in the world. Two, writing blog entries for the ACT Writers' Centre. And three, getting mentored by the woman behind the wonderful Canberra book blog, Whispering Gums. So I've been to some fantastic events so far this year, and you can check out my blogs in the show notes, but I just wanted to highlight the most recent one. So this year, 2017, is the 50th anniversary of the publication of Joan Lindsay's Australian classic, Picnic at Hanging Rock. To celebrate, the National Library of Australia hosted an absolutely wonderful event called Where's Miranda? I'll be writing about it soon for the ACT Writers' Centre's blog, so keep an eye out for that. But suffice to say, I think it was one of the um, literary highlights of Canberra in 2017 and a real testimony to the role that the Nash plays in looking after our literary culture. The whole thing was streamed live, and you can check it out yourself on the NLA Facebook page. So you might remember from earlier episodes, my family's book charity Books for the World ran a fundraiser in 2016 to raise money for our friends at Sakola Gunung Merapi, which is a school on a volcano in central Java in Indonesia. The money we raised is still being used to achieve great things for the kids and the adults who attend the school, and the school has just recently updated their website. There are some fantastic photos of the kids enjoying their books, and I'll chuck them in the show notes as well as the link. Um, I also thought I'd give a quick update on the Kitchener Street Library. There may be some other street library news coming soon, but meanwhile, the Kitchener Street Library is still going strong. Now that the weather's warming up, I took the opportunity to touch up the lettering on the front so you can see clearly all the names of the bunny-themed books. 
Um, have I mentioned on this podcast that I love rabbits as much as I love books? Anyway, I may also have decorated the sides with some stickers. And I found a gorgeous little note that a kid had left in there the other day. Um, there have been heaps of people signing in the guest book, which is great, and lots of book turnover. Um, though I did note that a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey came and went very quickly. Now, you might think that getting one copy of Fifty Shades of Grey is worth a bit of an eye roll, but how would you feel about your entire street library getting replaced with copies of Fifty Shades of Grey? 25 copies in total. This cheeky prank happened to a street library run by the Koala Park Laundromat in Burley Heads, Queensland. They've informed me that they're planning their own counter prank, so I'll keep you posted if I hear anything more. Oh my gosh, so much book news in October. Where to even start? Two huge book awards were announced. First was the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature, which was won by Kazuo Ishiguro. Ishiguro is a British author known for novels such as The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go. His writing was selected because it uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world and because it's driven by a great emotional force. Then, the Man Booker Prize was awarded for the second year in a row and for the second time in history to an American, this time George Saunders. The award was only open to American entrants in 2014. Previously, he was only known for his short stories, including a collection I reviewed on the Tinted Edges blog. Um, but Saunders has won the prize for his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. Now, of course there is Harry Potter news, but there is some extra, extra massive Harry Potter news that I just can't wait to talk about. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is coming to Australia. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is the latest two-part theatre installment in the Harry Potter series and fo follows Harry Potter himself as a middle-aged dad to three kids. Um, I reviewed the script, which was published as a book on the Tinted Edges website uh, last year. No spoilers, I promise. And I even did a special episode back in episode five about uh, me going to pick up my copy of the book and there, it was just, I mean, amazing. Kids dressed up in costumes and everywhere. Anyway, I digress. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child play coming to Australia. It's coming to the Princess Theatre in Melbourne in 2019. And you can already sign up to the website to get email updates about ticketing details. So go, go do it. Now, of course, that's not all Harry Potter news. The next Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them film, which is slated for release in November 2018. Now, I actually misread this and I thought it was November 2017 and I was like, oh my god, it's coming out in two weeks, but it's not. It's not. It's coming out next year, November. Anyway, they've had some casting updates and among them is Zoe Kravitz is going to be returning as Lita Lestrange. And it also looks like Nicholas Flamel, who we heard about but never met in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, will have a role in this film and he's going to be played by Brontus uh, Jodorowsky. Now, a documentary has been released on BBC Two to accompany the new Harry Potter A History of Magic exhibition at the British Library. The documentary is an hour long and you can check out the trailer in the show notes. However, unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's available to watch in Australia yet, but I will keep you posted as soon as I find out anything else. Finally, it's 
been announced that the Harry Potter companion book, Tales of Beetle the Bard, is going to be re-released as an illustrated edition in October 2018, with Chris Riddell doing the illustrations. So while we're on the topic of book releases, Philip Pullman's new novel, La Belle Sauvage, I think that's how you say it, Sauvage? Anyway, um, it's the first in his next trilogy, The Book of Dust. It's out. It's out, and I really need to sort my life out and buy a copy. Um, another book that's just been released is Joanne Harris's new novel, A Pocket Full of Crows. I'm not quite sure how I missed this because I'm like I'm a huge fan of Joanne Harris, but Anyway, apparently it's based on one of her Twitter short stories that she occasionally writes under the hashtag Storytime. This one has been described as an adult fairy tale, and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. So the third book in Brandon Sanderson's epic fantasy series, The Stormlight Archive, is hitting shelves in Australia on the 14th of November 2017. So actually this November, actually in now like less than two weeks. The book is called Oathbringer, and I only recently found out that this series is not in fact a trilogy, but will be an enormous series of 10 books. Sanderson is a powerhouse of an author, though. I have no doubts that he'll finish all 10. He's so good at finishing books, in fact, that he's famous for finishing Robert Jordan's epic series, The Wheel of Time, after Jordan himself died before it was finished. Then, one of my most beloved authors, Juliette Morelia, has announced that she is writing a new historical fantasy series called Warrior Bards. The first novel is going to be called Harp of Kings, and it's slated for publication in 2019. Now, this is ages away, um, but I'm still I'm so excited about this because even though I try my hardest to pace myself on Morelia novels, I am starting to reach the end of her bibliography. So I just want to take a second to talk about two groundbreaking books that popped up during October. So the first one is a book by a UK lesbian couple, Jenna Hill Wood and her wife Lydia. So after they realized that there were no baby books for same-sex couples while they were expecting their first child, they decided to make their own and they launched their business Our First Story, where you can order personalized books for two mummies and for two daddies. But another super cool book that was doing the rounds on social media is this incredible edition of Fahrenheit 451. This book is like unreadable. All the pages are completely black until you apply fire to it and then the black melts away and then you can read the text. Oh, look, I'm not quite sure I can paint you a word picture that will do this thing justice. So please go have a look. It is absolutely amazing. However, not all books are vulnerable from destruction by fire or by water. Two years ago, an Adelaide grandmother was on her way home from hospital when she accidentally left a library book out in the rain. After it got drenched, the septuagenarian tried to iron the pages dry, but her local library, the Sephamore Library, refused to accept it and they issued her a $50 fine. Poor Mrs. Walsh is on a pension and she couldn't afford to pay the fine, so she tried two times to bring in a replacement book, but her efforts were rejected and then ultimately she was banned from the library. So when she heard that the Enfield Council were proposing an amnesty for readers with outstanding fines, she wrote a letter to her local councillor Matt Osborne who, on reading Mrs. Walsh's letter, arranged for all of her fines to be wiped. 
The amnesty was in fact introduced to try and encourage more people back into the library in an area where apparently 80% of year three students are below the minimum national literacy standard. Anyway, while the libraries in Enfield Council don't charge late fees, they seem to be pretty strict about fees for lost or damaged books, and currently 1,500 people owe collectively over $180,000 in fees. In reading the story, I was pretty appalled that library staff wouldn't let her replace the book with a new book and then banned her from the library. Maybe there was more going on, but look, I'm so glad there was a happy outcome and Mrs. Walsh can now go back to the library with her granddaughters. Over in New Zealand, some sexy librarians have gone viral after recreating a Kardashian photo shoot. The librarians mimicked the same pose in a photo done to celebrate 10 years of keeping up with the Kardashians. Zero comment for me on that. Anyway, the librarians come from Invercargill and they look absolutely adorable. So it's been a while since we've had some book censorship news and the Biloxi School District in Missouri, USA, has decided to remove the acclaimed novel To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee from their junior high school reading list. The decision came after a parent complained about the use of the N-word in the text. This book is known for being a critical text on race relations in the USA, and the decision to remove it has been widely criticised. However, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of the USA's most frequently banned books. Now, one of the biggest stories in book news this month is also on schools and racism, but it is back home here in Australia. Award-winning Aboriginal author Ellen Van Nieven a Munanjali woman from southeast Queensland has been the target of online racist abuse from HSC students in New South Wales after her poem was on a final English exam. Although Van Nieven had no involvement in the poem Mango from her book Comfort Food being selected for the exam, HS students felt it was appropriate to send her personal messages, tweets and emails, and even started up a meme group on Facebook that quickly descended into racist memes and slurs and harassment and abuse. Another of Van Nieven's books, Heat and Light, was actually shortlisted for a Stella Prize and she is slated to be a judge for the 2018 Stella Prize. So the Stella Prize has, con- out- they've openly condemned the harassment, as have many other people and organisations. Writers and teachers were invited to sign a joint letter to the New South Wales Department of Education to be lodged by 23rd of October 2017, and the letter received over a thousand signatures. Uh, Some people have spoke out about what they consider to be a growing sense of entitlement among students. And look, I think also it's definitely fair to say that access to social media has changed the way that people can engage with writers. I certainly, when I was in year 12, would not have thought to email Jan Martel when an excerpt of his novel Life of Pi was on a practice English exam. So, look, I'm not going to repeat any of the abuse on this podcast because it is absolutely vile. However, various news organizations have posted de-identified screenshots of some of the disgusting racist comments that have been shared around. Instead, what I'm going to do is I will read Van Nieuwen's poem Mango and perhaps my listeners will have the imagination to appreciate its meaning. Mango. Eight years old. Walking under the bridge. Scrub. Swamp. Abandoned machinery. Insides of tennis balls. Bits of fences. Meeting the boys at the dam. Bikes in a pile. Skater shoe soles. Not cold in, never is. Boys talking about mangoes, slapping water. Some have never had one. 
Listen to the taste. The squeeze of a cheek. Dripping chins. A dog jumps in. They pull on tufts of hair. Fill ears with mud. Breeze full. Clouds break. They remember my birthday is tomorrow. I personally think it's beautiful. Anyway, just quickly before we get to the main segment of today's podcast, I already mentioned the incredible picnic at Hanging Rock event that I went to, but I just wanted to highlight two other events that I attended. Three, actually, because I can't count. Three events. One was a talk with Miles Franklin winner Sophia Laguna, who was interviewed by Karen Vigors in an event put on by the ACT Writers' Centre. It was a fantastic event with rapid-fire personal and incredibly in-depth discussions between two very smart writers. I do occasionally get plus ones to events like these, so if you want to be kept in the loop about them, check out the Lost the Plot Patreon page because all my supporters will get an opportunity to be first pick for these kinds of tickets to literary events as and when they come up. Another amazing event was going to see Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb, who do the podcast Chat 10 Looks 3, at their event in Sydney. I'd link you the recording of the event, but apparently the recording didn't end up working, so you'll just have to take my word for it. It was fantastic. I went with a friend of mine who very kindly drove and put up with my car singing on the way there and back, Um, and it was so great meeting the two authors after the show and getting one book each of theirs signed. So... The last event was a very eye-opening book launch at Muse Bookstore in Kingston. It was a double book launch with, as always, fantastic snacks and wine, and the two books were very, very interesting-sounding feminist texts. One was a fiction work about torture, I think, and uh, torture um, in particularly targeting lesbian people, and another was a non-fiction work about surrogacy. I was by far the youngest person in attendance, um, and I think everybody else knew each other, but it was a really interesting event to go to, to hear the authors speak about their work and the research that had gone into it. Muse does really great book launch events, so I thoroughly recommend you check them out whenever they're on. Okay, so speaking of feminism, it's time to get to the heart of this month's episode, Feminist Fairy Tales with Erin Claire Barrow. So we're here today with illustrator Erin Claire Barrow. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you. So let's get started. How did you first get into storytelling? Well, I'm a bit obsessed with storytelling. I love stories. Um, I've always written stories. So even when I was quite young, I think my first story I wrote, I was probably about 11 and it was an illustrated story that probably had a magical horse in it because pretty much everything I wrote back then did. Oh, I'm pretty sure I wrote that story as well when I was 11. (laughs) Um, and then I moved from that on to um, trying to write fantasy novels for myself. So I think my first fantasy novel I got about 50,000 words into when I was 16. Wow. And then another one um, I had about 10 notebooks full of notes for when I was about 18. And then suddenly life just got in the way and I stopped writing stories. Oh. And so I got, um, instead I just really enjoyed telling stories, which in, like in a way it's really satisfying because you take other stories that you don't have to actually come up with and you retell them. To, to an audience and that's really enjoyable but it's also a bit sad because you don't take the time to come up with your own stories or your own versions. Do you think you'll revisit that uh, novel you wrote when you were 18? Um, I'm actually tempted on a fairly frequent basis. Yep. I still feel like very affectionate towards the characters because I invested so much time in them. I know, 10 notebooks um, full. <laughs> Oh, but some of them were pretty, um, you know, terrible stereotypes. So <laughs> 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 it 
<laughs> they need some serious reworking nowadays. So as I'm sure the listeners have guessed, um, you don't just do writing. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your art and how your art um, interplays with your writing and what kind of styles you use? Yeah, sure. So I'm yeah, so I'm also an illustrator. I'm probably much more of an illustrator than a writer, to be honest, because that's something I've never had a break from. Um, I've loved drawing forever. I used to draw on the bus when I was on my way to school, and then I would keep drawing in my classes at school. I was would, it a bit bumpy on the bus? It was a bit bumpy, but yeah. <laughs> work with that. <laughs> <laughs> I draw all through my lectures at uni, and um, now when I'm having meetings, I have to try not to draw in front of my boss. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always been a bit of an obsession. Um, but what I really do at the moment is I do watercolour illustrations, um, mostly of kind of whimsical things from fairy tales or folklore. Um, and that's been a fairly recent thing. I think I've been doing that for about six or seven years. And before that, I tried out a whole bunch of other styles to try and figure out what I was really passionate about. Yep. And watercolour illustration is my thing. So I'm happy to kind of stick with that and try and improve. So what do you think it is that you like about watercolours? Oh, such a good question. I think a lot of my favourite artists work in that style. So yep. they're all um, mostly artists from the kind of golden age of illustration from the early 1900s. Um, so Arthur Rackham, Edmund Dulac, John Bauer, Kay Nielsen, lots of others um, who are all kind of wonderful illustrators from that period all work in this kind of watercolour style or with watercolours. Um, and then some of my favourite recent illustrators such as um, Nati Pachipipat or Stephanie Law um, are also watercolour illustrators. So part of it is just having those people that I look up to and admire yeah. and part of it is just the ease of the medium. Like I, I find it easy to work with um, and I like the kind of colours that you get that are really light but also glowing and yeah, I just like watercolours. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've done a bit of watercolours as well, but I find them a little bit terrifying because you have to really, it just turns out the way it turns out, you know, sometimes. Yeah, you do have to let go a little yeah. bit, don't you? Yeah, I tried, I, that's something I have to work on, actually, that letting go. So I try to let myself let go more with paintings, and sometimes I find that I'm spending ages putting in every tiny detail. Um, and I have to draw back and be like, no, actually, I want this to flow. Let's have a few disasters on the page and that will actually make it better in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> so. so I know you're currently working on a project that incorporates uh, your illustration called Feminist Fairy Tales. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So the Feminist Fairy Tales is going to be a book where I'm retelling and illustrating six traditional fairy tales with a feminist twist. Um, I've I'm pretty obsessed with fairy tales. I think I already mentioned that a lot of my art at the moment, um, or over the past seven years I've been doing watercolours, has been um, revolving around fairy tales and folklore. But my love of fairy tales goes back a lot longer than that. So when I was little, I used to have this book of Grimm's fairy tales, and they were really grim. They're not like the modern kind of, you know, nice sanitised versions. They were pretty grim. Yeah. Um, and I used to read it in bed, hidden under the covers with a torch, because my mum didn't think that fairy tales that grim were appropriate for a six-year-old. <laughs> So, um, and then I think growing up I read more and more fairy tales but eventually moved on to kind of novelised versions where we could get a bit more um, diversity in the books and in the stories and representation and also where the characters could have more in their lives to aim for than just marrying the handsome prince or catching the handsome princess as the case may be. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I love fairy tales but I wanted something that was a bit more, like gave me a bit more. So. I feel like the traditional fairy tales, they have very rigid gender norms. There's a lack of options in particular for the female characters and there's a huge diversity problem. Um, so most of the characters in traditional fairy tales are either expressly or implicitly straight, white, 
able-bodied, young and conventionally beautiful. Um, men are often rewarded for being clever and brave and women are often rewarded for being patient, obedient, gentle or beautiful. Um, there's been a pretty grand history of retelling fairy tales over the last, well, probably forever, but especially the last couple of hundred years. Um, so if you think about from fairy tales being told in the courts of like Italy and France in the 1700s and the 1800s, um, sorry, 17th and 18th centuries, and then in the 1800s, 19th century, Brothers Grimm retelling fairy tales, and then more recently you've got um, Roald Dahl with Little Red Riding Hood with a pistol in her knickers, oh, or you've got right. Disney. So yeah. there's fairy tales have always been retold, and they kind of retold to fit like the social norms of the day or to appeal to the audience, which at the time is the modern audience. And somewhere down the track, ours as the new modern audience looks back and we think, golly, this is really outdated, what's going on? And that's just because it's just right, you know, fairy tales are right for someone to come along and do a new retelling. And I feel like that's what I'm going to do with the feminist fairy tales is it's part of that tradition of retelling them. And this is just the new retelling. The 2017 retelling. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, can you tell us, are, are we allowed to know any of the ones that will be included in your book? Yeah, absolutely. So let me think. I'm doing... Well, I can tell you a little bit about them if you like. So yeah, that'd be great. I've got Cinderella. So Cinderella is an older woman. She's, um, rather than having an abusive or difficult um, stepmother and an absent father and the two sisters, she's got um, she's in an abusive relationship with her very difficult son, which I think is an issue that is under-discussed in our society today. Oh. Older women who are like in an a elder abuse yeah, scenario. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so she's, and she's quite a strong woman, but... As I had an interesting discussion with um, my brother actually about what how relationships like that might play out. Um, we're lucky to come from a very loving family, but he was saying he feels like a lot of women will do anything for their sons, and even while they might be very strong women, it's difficult to say no to an abusive son. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's my oldest Cinderella who has to overcome that relationship. Um, but the rest of the story is very similar to the one you know. Um, it's just bringing in a different element and it's a bit of a slight twist and she may have a little bit more action and agency in resolving her crisis than traditional Cinderella stories. <laughs> and having, you know, somebody just come and magic her a solution. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I think she gives the fairy godmother an earful when the fairy godmother gives her an inappropriate outfit for the ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see the illustration for that one. Um, and um, can you tell us about any others? Yes, so let me think. So I've got um, the Goose Girl. So the Goose Girl... You, which you may or may not know is one where there's a princess who's heading off to a, far, a foreign country to marry a prince that she's never met and on the way her maid assumes her identity um, and the princess is not very she doesn't have a lot of agency in fixing that problem um, in the traditional story eventually she's discovered to be the real princess because she tells her story to a stove and the king happens to be listening to the chimney pipe of the stove and hears the story and fixes the problem for her. So oh, okay. very much there's a man comes along, hears the story and takes care of all the problems for yeah. you. So in my retelling, um, the goose girl, rather than being a princess, she's a, dare I say, productive member of society um, and she's a doctor. <laughs> and, um, and the way that she, the um, replacement of her by her, apprentice has been is discovered is through her knowledge because she's actually a competent capable doctor um and they realize that the person who's replaced her kind actually doesn't have a skill set yeah um while she's off there you know as supposedly the apprentice but actually doing a wonderful job oh that sounds yeah. fascinating um and i'm also retelling um beauty and the beast rapunzel the princess and the pea 
and another one that escapes me right now. <laughs> uh, now, I can um, never pronounce this, so you'll have to help oh, me out. Alalira. Yeah, yes. there we go. Yeah. So that's one of the less well-known ones, which might be it might be a quite a new one for some people reading this fairy tale book, but it is one of the traditional Grimm's Brothers fairy tales. And I've seen some of the illustrations for that one, and the, I mean, I think a big part of the story is her cloak. Yeah. And that just has been... Watching, watching the rendering of, of her outfit, it just, I, I mean... Oh, thank you. Yeah, it looks amazing, but also looks, like, incredibly complex. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that was that was actually really fun to paint. I um, ended up changing my paper, which is probably doesn't mean that much unless you're, like, a watercolour illustrator, so you might get this. I went for a completely different type of paper because I just couldn't get the effect I wanted with the cloak, with all yeah, the fur. Yeah. Um, so part of the story is that Alalira is a princess who has to escape from her abusive father, um, and she sets a condition that he needs to provide a cloak for her that comes from, uh, that is made up of a small piece of fur from every animal in the kingdom. Oh, God. So it's the cloak of a thousand <laughs> Vegans, furs. close your ears. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> this, this bit of the fairy tale does not translate very well into 2017. Yeah. <laughs> I did have a moment where I was like, should I actually change that? But I feel like it's very central to it. So yeah. it was an interesting conundrum. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's the cloak of a thousand furs and it has to have all these different types of fur in it. And that was a real challenge. To paint, but fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks it looks incredible, and I can't wait to see um, the finished the finished product. So, um, what's the so what is the next step for feminist fairy tales? So the next step is to try and bring it to life as a book. So at the moment, I've got my six fairy tales and all my illustrations, or most of them anyway, um, finished. But I want it to be something that people can actually pick up, like a physical thing. So you can go online and see most of my most of my pictures now. But I want people to be able to hold it and leaf through it and think, actually, today I feel like reading Beauty and the Beast, or today I feel like reading Rapunzel. Yeah. And look through it. So in order to do that, I need to fund it. And I'm going to um, self-publish it, so I need to have some funds ready to do that and produce a book, which I can then send to lovely people out there who are interested in a feminist fairy tale book. And um, I'm going to do that through a Kickstarter campaign. So my Kickstarter will be launching quite soon. And it will um, give people an opportunity to pledge their support and in return they'll be able to get a copy of the book or a copy of the book and a print or a copy of the book and an original illustration. Yeah, so for listeners who haven't gotten on board with the Kickstarters, um, what are you doing? It's 2017, like crowdfunding <laughs> is the future. But, um, you know, they're a great opportunity to support independent artists um, you know, because you can follow somebody online and really like their art, but, you know, artists like they work really hard, they put a lot of effort into it. So if you wanna if you wanna actually give them some support, Kickstarters are a great way to do it, especially if they have a discrete project that they're working on. And um, they often have tiers, so you can, you know, if you wanna just chuck in maybe five bucks, for example, that might get you like a small reward, or like if you buy the full book, that'll be, a, you know, just a little bit more, or you want more, a couple of copies, or, and, um, some of the some Kickstarters, you know, if, if they they'll set a funding goal, and if they go beyond that, then everybody gets extra things. I I mean, they're really yeah. great. Yeah, absolutely. Stretch goals, they call them, and I'm already getting excited about what things I could come up with for stretch goals. I know. I'm <laughs> jumping the gun a little bit there, yeah. but um, yeah. But I think I I follow a lot of other artists online that I love, and supporting their Kickstarters is one of the things I really enjoy because it's a really affordable way to collect art from artists that you love. Yeah. Because much as I'd love to buy an original from everyone that I follow online, I'd be quite broke. So Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so buying a book that they've made through a Kickstarter is a great way to kind of support them and actually be able to afford to do it. 
Yeah, and I've supported a few um, Kickstarters. I'm, I'm trying to think of some that I might have reviewed on my blog. Um, but one of my one of my favorite ones, uh, another author illustrator, is uh, Ursula Vernon, who did this graphic novel called Digger. Oh, lovely! Um, and it actually ended up winning. Uh, she she published it online first, um, and then and then did a Kickstarter, and she won a Hugo. And it oh, was cool. like a, like for a webcomic. It hadn't even been published yeah. when she won the Hugo for it. You well, know, I so there's, that. I mean, so that that's the thing, like something that's so good that it wins a Hugo Award before it's even been published. And then, you know, I mean, just because stuff isn't published doesn't mean it's not quality, right? You oh, know, absolutely. so this, so th- this is a really great way to kind of, you know, support an artist that you love and help get a project that you're really invested in off the ground. And then you get to keep a book forever. Thanks, Harry. That's exactly what I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so if listeners want to keep updated about what you're doing in Feminist Fairy Tales, where are the best places for them to find you at the moment? Good question. So the best place to probably keep hearing about Feminist Fairy Tales so that you know when the Kickstarter comes out, um, where to find the pictures as I finish them, or just to ask me any questions you have about it, um, is probably to sign up to my newsletter, which you can do through my website. And if through my website, you can also see... Um, my portfolio so you can look at all my pictures on there which you should you should definitely do that thank you um so i think there'll be a place on your blog for a link to that is yeah that right? yeah I'll, I'll i'll link everything as per usual in the blog great um and if you want to check it out right now it's erinclayillustration.com um but i'm also on patreon which tinted edges is as well which is fantastic yes so this podcast is also on patreon um do you say patreon or patreon i can oh, never make up my mind i'm never sure yeah Patreon. Now I'm going to. Uh, no, I know. Start. I know. I say it differently. I think every single time. Yeah. Um. And so, what's the what's the URL? I'll put this in the link as well. But what's the URL for your Patreon? I think it's Patreon.com/slash/ErinClaireB. Yep. But let's check that one. Yeah. And um. And what kind of things do people get if they sign up to that? Well, the most exciting bit is that you get to read the fairy tales before anyone else. Ooh. So some of my my so Patreon is a bit like a Kickstarter, except it's ongoing. It's for smaller pledges. And the rewards are frequent like every month rather than being a one-off at the end of the Kickstarter campaign. Um, so for some pledge levels in my Patreon, you can read the fairy tales as I finish them. I'll upload them as a PDF or ebook um, with the full fairy tale story and all the illustrations. Um, and then for lower levels, you can do things like um, get all my artwork as it's coming out, get a much more personalized commentary than I'd put up online anywhere else about the process and what I'm working on. Ask me questions about the art and the fairy tales and how it's all coming together, um, or any tips for writing or drawing or fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition, I think probably my favourite bit of running the Patreon is that I do a monthly draw every month where I paint a small picture and send it to one of my patrons um, from a random draw, and that's and the most I, enjoyable and bit. And I won the random draw last month and that was great <laughs> <laughs> you did and actually your picture of the beast that I gave you was probably one of my favorite ones I've done for that so yeah I'm really, I really love that. it re- I'll stick a photo of that in the in the show notes as well if that's okay awesome yes yeah. please do brilliant okay well thank you so much Erin Claire that was brilliant thank you so last month I mostly just went through all the books I read on my America trip Now I'm settling back into life as usual, I'll go back to my favourite October reads with some mini-reviews. Unusually, I'm actually still a little bit behind in my book reviews on the Tinted Edges website, so some of these will be exclusive! First look! Anyway, I only got through four books in October, mostly because a review request bogged me down a bit. However, I finally got around to reading 
My B Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. This book caused a little bit of a stir, which I talked about on episode 8, after the apparent real author behind the pseudonym was uncovered and her name published by a journalist. After all the hype, I was expecting something excellent, and when I read it, well, uh, look, I mean, it's fine, but it wasn't quite as brilliant as I had anticipated. I also, of course, read Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay in preparation for the NLA event, and I'll talk more about this Aussie classic in detail when I get to my review, but I found this book a very personally challenging book to read. I mean, the author did a phenomenal job creating tension and this sort of sense of unease, but there are nevertheless some issues that I had with it. My favorite book, though, hands down from October, was On Doubt by Lee Sales, who signed it for me. Um, so this is a quick nonfiction read, which is about the erosion of objective truth in media, politics and reporting. And it is an, an absolute must read for everyone. The book was originally published in around 2008, and it's been republished with a new 2017 chapter by Sales. I was blown away by the brilliance of this book, and I cannot wait to write my full review. Alright readers, that's it from me. I'll be back in December with more book content, so until then, if you want to support this podcast, check out the Lost the Plot Patreon page, follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page, or subscribe to the Tinted Edges website if you want to keep up to date with book news and book reviews. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in December.